0: This is a special presentation of World Footprints Radio. Remembering 9-11, 10 years later. From Washington, here are your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Hello everybody, thank you for joining us today on World Footprints
1: Radio. We're your host, Tanya Ann Fitzpatrick, and in commemoration of the 10th anniversary of the September 11th attacks, we're honored to bring you our special broadcast, Remembering 9-11 10 Years Later. A decade has passed since the horrific terrorist act that stole nearly 3,000 innocent lives. Today, we are honoring the memory of those we lost, those who survived, The citizens of our country who rose as heroes, and the men and women of our military who risk everything for us. If there are two themes that describe America as a nation in this country, it is one of resilience and one of courage.
0: Everyone has been touched by the events of 9 11. Today we're sharing a variety of stories from World Trade Center and Pentagon survivors to clergy. Military personnel, an actor, and journalist. Today you will hear from two World Trade Center survivors, Lauren Manning, a partner at Cantor Fitzgerald, and Nicole Simpson, who worked at Morgan Stanley in the Second World Trade Center Tower. You'll also meet Colonel Jeff Cashman, who was one of the first U.S. military pilots nationwide to take to the air on domestic armed combat air patrol and Jeff Morin, whose group, the Manhattan-based American Bible Society, went toward the chaos to offer humanitarian assistance and spiritual comfort. No matter where you were on September 11th, everyone has a story. Two other guests, actor Don Diamond and Washington, D.C.-based USA9 TV anchor J.C. Hayward, were on the West Coast. Their physical distance from the East Coast tragedies touched them as closely as if they had been here. You'll hear their stories. Finally, two survivors of the Pentagon attack will join us, William Layer and Vincent Cam, whose office was one hallway removed from the point of impact.
1: For the first time, we will also share our 9-11 story. And we invite you to share your experiences by commenting on our blog, Remembering 9-11, your stories, at worldfootprints.com. Lauren Manning was a partner of Cantor Fitzgerald. On the morning of September 11, 2001, she was inside the World Trade Center where she was engulfed by fire that burned over 80% of her body.
2: Everything moves. It is better to conquer yourself than win a thousand battles. Then victory is yours. It cannot be taken from you, not by angels or by demons, heaven or hell. Buddha I rush out of our apartment at about 8.30 a.m., annoyed to be running so late, but glad after the turmoil of the previous night to be on my way to work. Normally I would be out the door by 8 a.m., but just as I was about to leave, I received a call from Mary Fitzpatrick, the caretaker, of our weekend home in pine plains a real estate appraisal of the house is scheduled for later today but the key for the appraiser has disappeared our summer renters had dropped it off earlier this morning putting it in an envelope taped to a shopping bag that carried a freshly baked apple pie They'd hung the bag from the knob of Mary's back door, but Maggie, Mary's free-ranging black lab, had found the pie and wolfed it down, and the key was nowhere to be found among the crumbs. Fortunately, I was able to reach Billy Woods, a friend and realtor, who also had a spare key, and who lived nearby in Rhinebeck, and she agreed to be there to open the house. Now, after a kiss for my son Tyler and a quick hello to Joyce, his babysitter, and a barely grumbled goodbye to my husband Greg, I am finally on my way. I walk up Perry Street to Washington Street, where I wait several minutes to hail a cab. But soon enough I'm riding south, making a right on Houston Street, then left to join the morning crush of cars and trucks inching down West Street toward the World Trade Center. I glance at my watch, and again, I'm irritated by how late it is. The watch is gold and silver, an engagement gift from Greg. And for a moment, I wonder if I should have worn my silver watch instead, since it might have gone better with the slate gray silk suit I'm wearing. Across the Hudson River, the Jersey City skyline is bright and sharp against a backdrop of dazzling pure blue sky. The river is deep gray. Its wind-driven swells crisscrossed, by the wake of morning water taxis. I grow impatient when we are caught at yet another red light, but before long we are turning left across West Street to the carport entrance to One World Trade Center. As the taxi pulls under the clear roof of the Port cochère, I take out my wallet to pay the driver. Two cabs in front of us pull forward, and I ask my driver to move up a bit so I can get out directly in front of the building's entrance. I step out of the cab thinking how warm it is for September, how just the week before we were still at the beach in Bridgehampton. Heading for the revolving doors, I walk past the security barriers, which are barely camouflaged as large concrete planters. As I approach the building, I look through the glass and see two women standing and talking inside. I smile at them as I push through the revolving doors. Then I move through a second set of doors and enter the lobby where I am jarred by an incredibly loud, piercing whistle. I hesitate for a moment before attributing the noise to some nearby construction project and continuing toward the elevators. Directly ahead, elevator banks serve floors 1 through 43. A central freight elevator serves every floor from 1 through 107. To my right, two elevators on the lobby's south side go straight to windows on the world the restaurant on the 107th floor. These two are flanked by eight more that go to the Sky Lobby on the 44th floor. To my left, on the north side of the lobby, 12 express elevators serve the 78th floor Sky Lobby, where I will catch a second elevator to reach my 105th floor office at Cantor Fitzgerald. As I veer toward the elevators, I suddenly feel an incredible sense of otherworldliness, It's an odd, tremendous, quaking feeling, and everything moves. The entire 110-story tower is trembling. Then I hear a huge, whistling rush of air, an incredibly loud sound. My adversary is racing toward me, howling in the fury at its containment, as it plummets to meet me from above the 90th floor. This is the moment and place of our introduction. With an enormous screeching exhalation, the fire explodes from the elevator banks into the lobby and engulfs me, its tentacles of flame hungrily latching on. An immense weight pushes down on me, and I can barely breathe. I'm whipped around, looking to my right where the two women were talking. I see people lying on the floor, covered in flames, burning alive. Like them, I am on fire.
1: Fleeing from the burning tower, Lauren promised herself that she would see her son's face again. Her choice to live began a 10-year journey of survival and rebirth that tested her almost beyond human endurance. Her long road to recovery continues today, but inspired by the birth of her second son, Lauren shares her tireless journey and story of transformation in her book, unmeasured strength and we have a link to Lauren's book on our website on the show page
0: facing death almost always forces an individual to assess what is really important in life Nicole Simpson's story is no different on September 11th she was in her office on the 73rd floor in Tower 2 at the World Trade Center or life was immediately altered.
3: Uh, My name is Nicole Simpson, and I am a World Trade Center survivor. I worked on the 73rd floor of 2 World Trade Center and was still in the building on the 44th floor. That morning on September 11th, I was in the middle of a meeting with my staff. um, As it was early in the morning, we were preparing for the events of the day, and um, Tower 1 was actually hit. And when Tower 1 was hit, we felt the vibration and the impact and the lights flickered off and on in Tower 2, but we didn't think that, or at least I didn't think, that there was any sense of urgency to do anything specific. So um, I continued to work with my assistants, uh, but I was led to go to the window. And as I went over to the window, um, what I saw was burning paper um, that looked very similar to me, as if the Yankees had won the World Series and confetti was in the air, um, but it really bothered me to see the the paper burning and just to see so much of it and so I went back to my office and told my assistants to let's go ahead and get out of the uh, get out of the building and so as we were walking, one of the things that we began to do, we picked up our receptionist along the way, and as we began to walk down the steps, we realized afterwards that the company I worked for, which was Morgan Stanley had been in the building when the towers were hit in 93, so they had an evacuation plan in place. And so the colleagues of mine had um, left out of the building, and they were much lower because they had gotten on the elevators, but we didn't get on the elevators. And they were making the announcement that Tower 2 was secure, Tower 2 was secure, that we didn't have to evacuate the building because of the security of Tower 2. So I got to the 44th floor, and I was like, okay, well, we can go back upstairs if the building is secure, no need to um, leave out of the building. Got on the elevator and instinctively felt the need to get off. So before we allowed the elevator doors to close, uh, we got off of the elevator, and not even 30 seconds, Tower 2 was hit, and we were on the 44th floor. Now, mind you, one of the things that happened is the elevators came crashing down, And it caused fireballs and explosions. And so there were people alongside of us that were getting burnt, were being tossed about, and that perished. But where I was standing, the door didn't open. The elevator door didn't open in front of me. And so we were like, uh, for me, divinely protected because we saw people that just died right next to us. And here we are not being affected the way that they were being affected. And I don't know the sense of time. That's one of the things that I don't have about that day is the sense of time. But um, after a spell, when it seems as if it could get as calm as possible, we began to walk and evacuate out of the building until we began to walk down the steps. And it was really kind of eerie because you would think that it would be chaos and stampedes, given what had transpired. And obviously at that point we knew that we were uh, under attack. But it was calm. It was very eerie. It was very orderly. And now getting out of there, the staircase was lit, uh, very well lit, and we didn't smell any smoke or any debris until we got further down to close to the mezzanine, and then you started seeing the water gushing up and you saw um, the smoke. Uh, Occasionally a firefighter or a police officer would go in the opposite direction or carry someone down uh, as well. And we didn't get to see, barring what happened on the 44th floor, the true impact until we hit the mezzanine. And when we hit the mezzanine, that was where there were so many glass panes from the bottom to the top. The World Trade Center was just filled with glass. Uh, My first thought was freedom. Get out of the building. Let's just go. We need to get out of there. But if you stood there for a moment, you realized that there were people that were falling out of the buildings. There was debris that was coming out of the buildings, so it was not safe for us to exit out of that way, and I think at that point uh for me that was um it, it was very emotionally um unnerving because they wanted us to go further into the building that had gotten hit. I see freedom, and they want me to go deeper into a building, and I don't know where my life is going to be uh spared there and so The police officers and the firefighters knew exactly what they were doing, though. So going down into the building, we went past the, um, you know, just the whole shopping area that was down there. They had the Disney store and the strawberries and, you know, the Nine West store. And we came up out of Five World Trade Center, the escalator that was next to the infamous Krispy Kreme, and the um, bookstore. And as I came up out of there, along with my assistants and my receptionist who were still with me, we got out of Five World Trade Center And I just went to Broadway, and I did not turn around. I did not look at anything until I hit Broadway. And when I got to Broadway, I turned around, and the only thing that I saw was a plane that was hanging outside of Tower 2. I can't remember a thing about Tower 1. I can tell you every single thing that looked at from my perspective of Tower 2. And it was just so disheartening because uh, the day was so beautiful that, you know, when you saw the fire, it was perfect orange. You saw people that were destined to die on that day, and all I can think of was, oh, my God, I just got out of there, and a plane hit the building. And, and And I must admit, you know, that probably would have been a perfect opportunity to break down and, you know, be absolutely devastated, and my assistants actually were. But being the team leader and being responsible for them, I just really didn't have that luxury to do that. And instinctively, again, you know, um, I just felt like we weren't safe where we were. And then logically speaking, because of our phones not working and things of that nature, I I knew that I needed to communicate with someone at home. My partner at the time worked at, um, lived in Battery Park City, and she had gone to vote because it was primary election day in New York that day as well. So I had access to her um, to her house in Battery Park, so I figured, well, if I can get there, then what I'll be able to do is try to communicate with my family, let everybody know that we were all right, you know, and just kind of get us all to safety. And as we began to walk along um, the avenue to get to Battery Park City, just kind of walking around and, you know, hitting the highway and going to, um, you know, wreck the street and all of those things, when we got over there, literally, Tower 2 comes crashing down. And when it when it came crashing down, uh, obvious it was just such a total shock. But I just think, and I I have to say this, I have to think about the grace of God, the fact that I was far enough away not to get the brick, but close still, because the dust and the pebbles just really cloaked us, that everybody was filled with a cloud of dust. And at that time, at some point between coming down the steps, I had lost a shoe, so I'm walking around with nothing, trying to get myself together, and the tower falls in. I don't know if anyone remembers, but it caused the area to be pitch black,
4: mm-hmm. where
3: no one would be able to see anything. And so here we are. We're struggling. We're sitting in dark. We're standing in darkness, and um, you know, it was just absolutely disconcerting. It's and a- then. I-
1: I'm sorry. So, for our, for our listening audience who um, may not be familiar with New York and the the geography of New York, <clears throat> excuse me. How uh, far was Battery Park? I mean, Battery Park was close enough for you to see the tower collapse, um, but in terms of distance, I,
3: I, how far? I I would say, if, you know, to be honest with you, I don't know. But you can say at least eight or nine blocks, it wasn't that far. It's not that far, that city, um, depending on where you're standing. So you have, uh, my goodness, Rector Street um, along that way. You have the um, the highway, which is like when you look at it um, from Tower 2, the highway was like two blocks over. Battery Park City would be at probably at like another two blocks. Once you get past the highway, the city is behind there. So you're not talking about being far away Uh, Had we been um, perhaps still at the highway, we would have been subject to the stones, the actual um, building itself. You know, there's a difference between the rubble and, um, you know, pebbles and rocks hitting you, and that's how far we had traveled enough that those big boulders, big bricks in the the infrastructure didn't hit us, but we still were subject to uh, small rocks and things of that nature. Mm -hmm.
1: And so... Was it? Did you realize that a plane had actually hit the towers after you exited when you were walking along Broadway? Is that the first time you realized what had actually happened?
3: Absolutely not. Actually, we knew that a plane had hit Tower 1, but we had a misconception because we thought that it was like a small news reporter plane. We were accustomed to planes being in the area just based off of the fact that it was the financial mecca. And so um, a lot of news reports Came from that perspective, or from that um, from that area. So, uh, when Tower One got hit, it wasn't we we weren't on guard. We didn't think the worst that had happened. We just thought that it was an accident, you know, with one of those planes. When I was in Tower Two, and the building got hit while I was on the forty-fourth floor, I knew we were under attack. I knew instinctively it was another plane. I knew that it was. Um, You know, just uh, absolutely crazy that that could happen. But instinctively, I knew. Um, And my concern at that time was that another plane was coming. And even as we were walking down the stairs, we had heard that um, something had hit the White House. That's what the information was filtering, Mm
5: -hmm. and that
3: something was in in Pennsylvania. We didn't have all of the details, but the information filtered throughout, um, you know, the the corridors or, or the stairway as we were going out. So we knew. That's why I panicked when I got to the mezzanine, and they wanted me to go further in the building. That just didn't logically make sense. I'm trying to get free and you want me to go further into a building of which I just saw get hit because well I didn't actually see it but felt it get hit and saw people alongside of me perish as a result of that.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, when you decided on the forty fourth floor, when you decided to exit the elevator instead of continuing downward, did you were there any people left on the elevator at that time? I don't
3: know. I you know what I really don't know. That, that, and that's uh, interesting that you asked me. I know I got myself off, and I know I got my assistants off because they were following me, but I couldn't even tell you if there was somebody else in the elevator.
5: From the outside,
0: it looks like Nicole has recovered from the tragic events of 9-11. She has returned to work as a financial planner. She's authored two books, and she's gone on the speaker circuit. However, Nicole says that many survivors, including her, suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. In Nicole's case, the sound of thunder or other loud noises takes her back to 9-11. She avoids entering high-rise buildings, and she cannot have an early start to her workday. Nicole says that the continuing struggles of many survivors are underrepresented stories in the media and that more attention needs to be paid to survivors' ongoing challenges.
3: I think it it, it is a, um underrepresented uh, sector of people, and actually it's the majority of individuals that went to work on that day and our lives were forever altered. I, I think many people have thought, you know, um, about the families of the deceased and the first responders because that's logic, someone lost a life. But for the individuals that were there, that were in the building, uh, you know, they've suffered as well. Uh, We've suffered from anxiety, from post-traumatic stress disorder. I think sometimes people don't realize that this was a war act for people who were not prepared for war. I mean, I've never seen bodies burned. That was my first experience. How do you forget about that? How do you... Get that image out of your head. Um, You know, just even with basic things like um, it's been raining and thundering and lightning in the area in which I live in, New Jersey. And so when other people hear thunder, uh, it sounds like thunder, an act of God. But when I hear it, I hear buildings falling, the rumbling of the buildings falling. And so immediately you can go back to that aspect. Uh, Catching the subway in New York City, you know, um, just being closed in uh these are some of the struggles that survivors have uh you know because there's one any one thing can trigger a memory and so when i look at what we've gone through, I think there has not been enough empathy and compassion because most people will say, well, they're all right. They they made it out of the building, and that just simply is not true. Um, and that's actually how I began to communicate with other survivors because I wanted to know if people were as angry as I was. I wanted to know if people, um, you know, experienced severe depression, if they felt, you know, ignored and left out of the conversation and dialogue. Because this was such a national tragedy, We have to understand, and I've tried to understand, that um, this affected everyone in America. But when we see it on television, trauma people usually recover from when time passes. And so when you look at 10 years, usually somebody can come up with a new normal. But for us, every time the media talks about 9-11, every time they pull out a picture, every time they, you know, show an image, it takes us back to that day where, we remember exactly what was going on and how we had to flee for our lives and the people that we saw you know that died against us um um next to us if you take somebody like myself who suffered physically you know um in addition to suffering mentally you know to be ignored and have the same issues uh, of suffering you know it's just it's very disheartening and it makes it makes it difficult for us to um to endure and, and to really recover um, our lives. The last piece of the puzzle is most most of us um, have struggled financially, struggled economically because, um, well, let me just use myself for an example, just being a financial uh, planner, you know, I operated off of, of, of commission, but, I couldn't go back to work. I was in therapy, so I couldn't earn a a living. And so uh, that was a struggle. That was my struggle for me. Then I realized I couldn't sleep at night. So if I couldn't sleep at night, I couldn't work efficiently during the daytime. And so that made it even more difficult for me. to recover there are some people that can't leave their houses they you know they really can't be around large crowds so how do you work and do you know a a good job for any particular employer who may not be sensitive to the fact that you know you didn't get any sleep last night so you're exhausted on the job during the day and so these are some of the things that you know um that, that I've had to talk about and and, and, and really write about and, um, you know, communicate with others uh, about because people have struggled. They've lost their houses. They've lost their families. They've lost their peace of mind. They've lost their ability to cope. And then any one thing can bring them back to that place of anxiety.
0: Nicole has experienced many ups and downs over the last 10 years, but during her darkest moments, she made a conscientious choice to live.
3: Overall, I'm I'm very disheartened. Uh, I'm disheartened because um, we're doing a lot of reflection um, of what happened then. Um, I don't really see the evaluation of the journey that we've taken. Um, America overall has made some missteps in this, um, this entire 10 years that have affected us as a country. And we're not using this as an opportunity to look ahead um to to show our resilience. I understand looking back. I think that that's very necessary, but what I see, even as i you know I've gone down to the towers um recently, what I see is recovery what I see is resilience. What I see is that um we will not allow someone to um, define who we are as a country, that message of hope, especially during these challenging times right now, needs to be portrayed more by the media, and that um, is not being... Presented enough. I mean, stories about survivors, um, which I'm appreciative, Tanya, that you would even have us so on, but stories about survivors that have overcome and have, have um, had a new normal uh, in 10 years, I think, lets people know that um, America will be fine and America is still standing. But if all of the media just reflects on um, is the challenges that we've endured and, and, and the stress and the heartache, which I've had plenty of it, don't get me wrong. I'm in counseling now, so this has been a very difficult year. So I understand that, but I wish that there was a balance. Um, You know, many survivors also, Tanya, they need, we need mental support. We need mental assistance, um, and there's not really enough out there for us. You look at um, even all of the charitable organizations that are out there, most of them cater to the children of the um, deceased or uh, families of the survivors or first responders, but nothing for living survivors that were directly impacted, um, you know, by the tragedy of 9-11. There literally are very few organizations that cater to our mental care, mental well-being, support groups, and things of that nature, which is why I'm so grateful for organizations like the World Trade Center Survivors Network, which allows us to come together and talk about things that other people wouldn't even begin to understand, you know. And then Tuesday's children, Tuesday's children, even though they focus um, on the children, they have one program that's both in New York and New Jersey that is dedicated and catered to the um, the living survivors, and that's important for people like me. Mm-hmm.
1: And and how can our listening audience, um, how can we support you? How can I support you
3: going forward? Well, One of the things that I did was um, writing has been very therapeutic for me. And um, 2007 was probably my worst year in this 10-year journey. And I had to make a decision. Are you going to allow this one incident to take you off course of where you think your life can be? Or are you going to move forward and overcome this very devastating event? And I chose to move forward. I chose to live because I had stopped dreaming. Um, so in that, I wrote um, this book titled 9-11-2001, which I really wasn't right in the book, but I started interviewing other survivors or just talking to them just to find out what their emotions were, and um, I just wound up putting it into the book. I chronically outlined what we've gone through in the last 10 years. So it's not only my story, it's other stories of other survivors. And what we've decided to do, uh, because I've been tremendously blessed, we've, re- um, we've put the book out as a fundraising um, initiative to raise money for Tuesday's children because Tuesday's children does have the being well staying well program we reduced the book of the um the price of the book to $2.99 so that anybody can get a copy online and a portion of the proceeds is going to go to Tuesday's children for that specific um for that specific program and they are allowing us to target it for that program and that program helps with mental health care and has support groups both in New York and New Jersey so your supporters can go on to NicoleBSimpson.com, and we certainly need all of the assistance that we can get um, in order to do that. Our goal is to raise a million dollars um, so that um, people in New Jersey and New York and really other areas can be blessed.
1: We have a link to Nicole's book, Nine Eleven Oh One: A Long Road to Recovery, on our website at worldfootprints.com. As Nicole mentioned, a portion of the proceeds from her book will help support Tuesday's Children's Mental Health Program.
0: When we return, you'll hear from Colonel Jeffrey Cashman, one of the first U.S. military pilots who took to the air on domestic armed combat patrol.
6: You know, something kind of tingled in my head at that point. This is a very serious thing, but it still didn't seem to connect with us. And I walked away from the TV and went back to the papers I was shuffling.
0: As the world footprints continues, remembering 9-11, 10 years later.
7: how incredibly, amazingly beautiful it was that day. I was in boot camp when I found out they had the news on and they mentioned that a plane had crashed into the World Trade Center. This year
8: marks the 10th anniversary of 9-11. What will you do to remember? I will remember
9: by planting a tree here at the Flight 93 Memorial. I will send care packages to troops overseas.
10: I will continue to be a volunteer fireman.
8: Join the 9-11 tribute movement. Post your tribute at facebook.com Slash Day or dot dayorg
1: Want to travel for less? Visit the worldfootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive non-published sales on travel. Our dynamic travel deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners, and you can't find these any deals anywhere else. We've seen sales for as little as nine dollars a night for hotel rooms and forty-nine dollar airline tickets. So stop by worldfootprints.com to see where you can go for less. Also, make sure you visit the travel marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services like passport processing.
0: Join award-winning World Footprints Radio, a leader in socially conscious travel for inspiring, entertaining, and educational shows. Meet well-known guests like Bobby Kennedy, Jr., actress Stephanie Powers, director Ken Burns, David Rockefeller, Jr., and other celebrities, newsmakers, and industry professionals who celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage, and support public diplomacy. Travel with us to unique places around the world, Join us in our efforts to raise awareness about environmental conservation and human rights issues and learn what you can do to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Visit our interactive and informative website, worldfootprints.com.
1: Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick.
0: And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick.
1: A few years ago, we decided to leave our respective legal practices to live a more purposeful travel life and help others leave positive footprints.
0: World Footprints was born and was quickly recognized for its award-winning journalism. We've covered events from the Olympics to a Titanic expedition, and we've discussed conservation, environmental, and public diplomacy initiatives.
4: Join
1: us for award-winning radio and visit our website, worldfootprints.com, for daily travel deals and comprehensive travel information. Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick.
0: And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're the host of World Footprints Radio.
1: World Footprints Radio and travel ra- socially conscious travel radio.
0: On World Footprints Radio, you'll meet celebrities committed to travel philanthropy and the protection of our planet.
1: And we'll introduce you to the people and places who will give you a taste of culture and heritage from their point of view.
0: Travel the planet with every episode of World Footprints Radio right here on Travel Radio.
1: And when you travel, remember to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Join award-winning World Footprints Radio, a leader in socially conscious travel, for inspiring, entertaining, and educational shows. Meet well-known guests like Bobby Kennedy, Jr., actress Stephanie Powers, and director Ken Burns, along with other celebrities, newsmakers, and industry professionals who celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage, and support public diplomacy initiatives. Travel with us to unique places around the world and join us on our efforts to raise awareness about environmental, conservation, and human rights issues and learn what you can do to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Also visit our interactive and informative website at worldfootprints.com.
10: World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals.
0: For the latest and last-minute travel deals, visit the WorldFootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive non-published sales on travel. Our Dynamic Travel Deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners. You can't find these deals anywhere else, and we've seen sales for $9 per night for hotels and $49 airline tickets. So stop by WorldFootprints.com to see where you can go for less. Also, make sure you visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services.
7: I remember how incredibly, amazingly beautiful it was that day. I was a boot camp when I found out they had the news on, and they mentioned that a plane had crashed into the World Trade Center. This year
8: marks the 10th anniversary of 9-11. What will you do to remember? I will remember
9: by planting a tree here at the Flight 93 Memorial. I will send care packages to the troops overseas.
10: I will continue to be a volunteer fireman.
8: Join the 9 11 tribute movement. Post your tribute at facebook.com/slash 9 day or 911 day.org.
0: This is a special presentation of World Footprints Radio. Remembering 9 11. 10 years later. Here's your host, Tanya Fitzpatrick.
1: Colonel Jeffrey Cashman is a Montana Air National Guardsman with nearly 4,000 hours of military flight time, most recently in the F-16. On September 11, 2001, then a major Cashman was one of the first U.S. military pilots nationwide to take to the air on a domestic armed combat air patrol. Colonel Cashman, take us through what you went through that morning of 9-11. Take us-
6: Where were you, Tanya, on that morning?
1: I was in my sister's uh, home uh, in Aberdeen. who My sister at that time worked on Aberdeen Proving Grounds, and I was actually uh meant to drive down to the Pentagon to meet a friend for lunch that day and my sister called me in the morning i overslept and she can she called me several times uh on the home phone to see if i had left or not
6: um well then you were you were east coast at least and y- and you remember how clear and blue the sky was that day that's that even now today when i see days like that it it reminds me of that cuz it's stuck in my head I was a pilot, an F 16 pilot with the Vermont Air Guard in Burlington, Vermont, that morning, and I came into work but wasn't on the flying schedule. And I remember being disappointed in that because it was such a nice day, it would have been a good day to be out flying. Uh, so I was doing paperwork at the squadron, and my wife called me after the first plane crash. She had seen it on TV or heard about it from her mom or something. And, um, I, I wandered over, and I looked at the TV, and I, I saw the footage there, and I went back and talked to my wife, and I said, that that doesn't track. You know, I, like everyone, we thought it might have been a light plane, which had happened. There was a Yankees pitcher uh, within a year prior to that who had crashed his plane or in, into a building in New York, um, but this obviously wasn't a light plane, so, you know, something kind of tingled in my head at that point. This is a very serious thing, but it still didn't seem to connect with us, and I walked away from the TV and went back to the papers I was shuffling and, and, you know, put it out of my mind until my wife called a second time and said it happened again to the other tower. And everybody's got a similar story like this. Um, But I remember very clearly saying to her, "That's, that's not a mistake. You know, that doesn't happen twice by mistake. And right at that moment when I'm still on the phone with my wife, they use the public address system in our squadron there to say, all pilots to the main briefing room and I said to her I got to go and and I didn't talk to her again until that night. Uh so I hung up with her and went into the briefing room and we talked through what we knew at that moment which was intuitively, you know, this is this is enemy action at this point. Uh and then we broke it down tactically into uh how would we stop this if a third attempt was made. And meanwhile, out on the flight line, we've recalled all the planes that were out doing training missions that morning and started loading them up with bullets and missiles getting them ready to go Um, and we the pilots talked about the tactics of what it takes to bring down a big airliner you can you know put a couple missiles into their engines and it won't necessarily stop the plane they can continue to glide and and make forward progress Uh, so we we went through that tactics discussion and then we checked all our gear and built a crew lineup, and just by virtue of circumstance, right place, right time, I was in that first two-ship formation that was going to head out the door. And sure enough, by the time we finished that discussion, within a half hour, the word came, launch your first two, and and we went. We did not go to New York City on the afternoon or on the morning there of of 9-11, that that first mission. You remember uh, how confusing it was and how there was an attempt to land every plane Mm-hmm. and clear the skies, and that isn't something I'm sure that the FAA had ever practiced before, and there was a lot of ambiguity going on in there. When we stepped out the door, the tasking was there's a plane coming down from Canada over in western New York State. We're not sure what their story is. The possibility exists they've been hijacked as well. Go stop them, and, and that was about the level of detail that we got. By the time we blasted out there to uh, to the rendezvous point, they figured it out the plane had landed and and thankfully uh... we didn't end up blasting anybody that day but um... there was was a lot running through my head as you can imagine in that half hour it took between when the word came go get them and and when the dust settled and we realized we didn't have to
1: Now, you know between um... at the time that that you you got the command you got the order um... it was right after you know after the the second plane hit the tower uh, but there were two other planes, one both actually en route uh to the D C area, one w- that hit the Pentagon, um, the other one that was uh stopped in, in Pennsylvania. H- did that how did that change your command or or add to the sense of urgency for you guys?
6: I, I think you you describe well that that sort of sense of confusion and Rose and I were just talking about, um, did you ever see that movie, United Flight 93? Um, It it sort of depicts the events of 9-11 from the viewpoint of the FAA uh, air traffic controllers. And I think it does a good job of really depicting how confused we all were. When you watch the movie now, in hindsight, all the clues are there. You see all the pieces, and you see it coming together, and you say, it's happening now, do something. But we couldn't, none of us could assimilate it quick enough at the time. Mm-hmm. So we didn't really know the full scope of what we were dealing with. Was it four planes? Was it 40 planes? Was was it every plane in America? Uh, we did not know. Um, so as a practical matter, up in Vermont, we really just necked down to the things that we could influence. You know, our little sphere, draw a 300-mile circle around Burlington, Vermont, and and that's what we can touch right there. So that's what we were working on, and it did not reach far enough south to include D.C. as part of the equation, Mm -hmm. or even Pennsylvania, for that matter.
0: Colonel Cashman talks about his training and how the Air Guard was postured to confront the unimaginable.
6: The history of... The Air Force, and and in particular the Air Guard's role in the defense of the airspace of the United States, goes back actually decades before this. And it was the Air Guard, including units like the Burlington, Vermont Air Guard that I was a member of, that had been, all through the 80s, intercepting Bear bombers as they came over the polar cap and, and headed down the eastern seaboard to Cuba. So there was a lot of experience and subject matter expertise resident in the Guard, on these type of missions, you know, intercepting big planes. But the emphasis had been historically during the Cold War, uh, stop the Russians, look outward from our borders, don't don't look internally. But I thought that that subject matter expertise translated really well. You know, once we, we just shifted our focus uh, from looking outward to looking inward, it was the Guard who was really best trained and equipped to respond to this. And I'll tell you, our country was fortunate in the sense that there had been a purposeful decision to deploy resources geographically spread throughout the whole United States, and here I'm talking about the Air Guard. We had trained and equipped and knowledgeable people spread all across the United States, and when a come as are party like this lit off, we were really well-postured to respond to that. I think that becomes relevant in this next decade now going forward as we start to reduce our investment in military capability, there's a temptation among senior leadership to put all those eggs in one basket. You know, that might be the most economical thing, have one giant fighter super base. It's important to remember that when the unexpected happens, uh, by diversifying our portfolio, if you will, by spreading out our assets in the Air Guard, we are better postured to confront the unimaginable. And that worked well for us then, and I hope we preserve that capability going forward. Mm
0: -hmm. We asked Colonel Cashman about the orders the Air Guard was given on 9-11 and about how he handled the internal conflict that his orders presented to shoot down any plane that didn't respond to orders to land immediately, knowing that there were innocents on board.
6: You understand that better than most Americans. I actually had a funny conversation with my neighbors about a year after September 11th. I uh, remember when Richard Reed, the shoe bomber, was, was caught on board mm-hmm. an American Airlines flight. And um, one of the quotes from one of the passengers was, we saw the fighters pull up alongside us, and then we knew we were safe. <laughs> and I laughed, and I said, you don't really understand the role of those fighters, do you? <laughs> you were a lot less safe than you had ever been <laughs> at oh, that point. Yeah. Uh, and we were able to joke about it, you know, a year in, in hindsight. But um, it was a uh, it was a kind of a culminating moment, at least for my military career. I had been in the Air Force about 12 years at that point, always as a combat pilot, always training, and never, uh, through circumstances, never dropped any bombs, fired any missiles in anger. I hadn't at all, but had been preparing myself for a whole career for that moment to come. Um, So we got the, the launch order, and we took off, and I was climbing out, you know, looking at the Green Mountains of Vermont, thinking, wow, this is not what I expected it to look like the day that I finally went to war. You know, I always imagined it was going to be hot and dusty and in some foreign land, and I was going to be killing very clearly bad guys. Um, And uh, remember from my background that I had left the active component Air Force after about nine years of service and uh, became a traditional guardsman and was hired at the same time as an airline pilot with a major airline. So I was going to track what very well may have been guys that I went through airline school with, you know, colleagues of mine from that half of my professional career. And uh and going to shoot a plane full of Americans and um the weight of those actions or those possible actions was not lost on us at all. We knew very clearly what we were getting into. But at the same time, there was no hesitation. It was it was I don't want to say um routine, that's not the right word, but it was the type of decision that people who are in the career field of the military, um, public service, uh, public safety, and here I'm talking about firemen, policemen, secret service, people like that, are they train every day making decisions that are meant to trade lives for mission accomplishment. And so the the concept of some people are going to die today, but we're going to get the job done. That's not an alien concept to any of those people. And and that sort of training, that mindset, prepared us well for what we were facing. It's not to say there weren't going to be some emotional burdens to deal with later, but it was going to be much later. It was going to be far down the list. And the more urgent concerns I had in that moment as we blasted out chasing a plane was, I can't get this wrong. Um I was very aware of the fact that there are a thousand people roughly in the Vermont Air Guard, and there were two of us now with our fingers on the trigger um, The efforts of nearly everyone else in the Vermont Air Guard had been focused down to this little point of the spear. you know all the weapons loaders had done their job, all the refuelers had put the put fuel in the planes ready to go all the crew chiefs had prepared them for launch. All the people who worked in the control tower got us off the ground as fast as we could. All of the people in the air traffic control had vectored us to the right position to be there. And, you know, of the 107,000 people in the air guard at that moment, two of them were in a position to solve the problem. And uh, I remember looking at the master arm switch, which in the cockpit is the the big go, no-go, you know, do the missiles fly off your plane or not. And it's a three-position switch with the center being off. One side is simulate, and that's what we use all the time when you practice. You know, for 12 years, I've been doing simulate. And I remember looking at it as I was flying out, and I was thinking, you go to arm. You don't get that wrong. You know, you you get that switch right. And and, uh, and I would have if it if it came to that, mm-hmm. which thankfully it didn't.
1: You know, you mentioned you've been in the uh, arm services for a number of years, and, you know, you're already – really predisposed or acclimated to these types of uh, you know battle scenarios um but has 911 changed your life in any way and if so how
6: I think uh 911 has probably changed all, all our lives but um let me share some uh specific insights um into our lives uh 911 caught me at a, a a sort of very transformational time in my personal life. My wife was pregnant for the first time and, you know, coincidentally uh, the doctor's office that we used during that pregnancy was in a little town right off the end of the runway in Vermont. So she had an appointment the afternoon of September 11th and it still went to it. You know, we up in Vermont it, the full gravity of what we were dealing with you know, life hadn't stopped. And she was sitting in there with her doctor and when we took off and we took off with the afterburners cooking you know rattling every window in northern vermont at the time and uh and they they knew it they thought well you know now the now the air force is involved my wife did not know it was me and it wasn't until i got home later that night after dark and called her and said hey i'm back i'm safe that she realized for the first time that i had left and you know broke down crying about it but that's a whole other story um but Mm -hmm. so you know, we were just starting our family then, and uh, you know, earlier this morning I was visiting my kids' school. They're in first grade and, and fourth grade now, and um, that almost seems like a like a tipping point uh, for all of American society. Uh, the 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 gift of ignorance that we had then, you know, that we were untouchable, that there aren't risks. Um, we don't have that anymore, but I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. You know, I think most Americans that appreciate what happened 10 years ago look at the world they're in today with a more critical eye. At least I hope they do, you know, that whole see something, say something. You know, I hope people don't ride the metro and don't pay attention to bags that people leave behind now. I hope that, um, you know, we pay more attention to guys wearing overcoats on hot days, things like that. Um, We have been blessed that the attacks on the American homeland for the most part, have really been contained to that one day. We've we've been really successful, I think, in in limiting that. But there are a lot of places in the world where those kind of risks exist every day. And I, for one, can't stop from looking for them every time I go around the corner. You know, you're at the fair with your kids, and you're and you're watching for things that don't belong. I remember when we went to Disneyland about uh, five years ago. It was playing in my head. You know the 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 horror, the value of of that target to the bad guys, and I was had my head on a swivel the whole time. So there's a little bit of that, I think, uh, for all of us. And like I mentioned, I I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. You mm-hmm. know, professionally, my career has gone in a very different direction than I expected it to as well. I was planning on the first of October, 2001, to revert to status as what we call traditional guardsmen. And, and fly part-time and go back to my full-time job of being an airline pilot. Um, instead, I started flying circles over New York City and did that for the next four years, stayed full-time uh, in that anti-terror mission. And then in 2005, I moved here to Washington, D.C., where I work on the staff for the Air Guard and have been doing that for six years or so now. So I am uh, you know a full decade removed from the airline career, the civilian job, that I thought I would be doing um, but that's not necessarily a bad thing for them either they are uh, the my company has 2,000 pilots still on furlough it's been a, a, a dramatic economic transformation in the airline business as a result of of these terror attacks
1: indeed well uh, Colonel Cashman I thank you so much for your service um, I thank you for joining us today on, on World Footprints and uh, love to see a photograph of your your baby
6: oh well uh there's there's two of them now um oh uh they're yeah they're great kids and uh lucky for them they take after their mom they're they're good looking (laughs) well thank you so much for joining us
0: from coast to coast the impact of 9-11 was profound even on the west coast there was a sense of panic urgency shock and pain as we hear from two people who were in California at the time, J.C. Hayward and Don Diamont.
1: Dr. J.C. Hayward is one of the most prominent journalists in the nation. As an anchor for WUSA 9, the CBS affiliate in Washington, D.C., Dr. Hayward, known affectionately as J.C., will be celebrating 40 years on air in February 2012. On the morning of September 11, 2001, J.C. was on holiday in Santa Barbara when she awoke to the news of the attack.
4: I am Dr. J.C. Hayward. I work for WUSA Channel 9, the CBS affiliate in Washington, D.C., and in February I will be celebrating my 40th anniversary as an anchor with Channel 9. Uh, On September 11th, I was in Santa Barbara, California. I woke up early because of the time change, so it was actually about 6 o'clock, or just before 6 a.m., turned on the television, uh, thought I was looking at a movie of... um, of a plane going into the Twin Towers and decided I really didn't want to see that. So I turned the channel and found out that the second channel had the same movie. And I thought, my goodness, what's happening? And I turned to the third channel, and that's when I guess I woke up and uh, realized that it was not a movie. In fact, it was live, live and that a plane had gone into um, one of the Twin Towers in New York, uh, I immediately called my station, told them I was in Santa Barbara and that I would be cutting my vacation short and I would be coming back to Washington. Well, of course, that could not happen because the airports were closed down immediately. And uh, did not reopen until uh, the end of the week. What makes this story so chilling to me is that I was on the American Airlines flight that went into the Pentagon on Tuesday. I was on that flight Saturday morning at 8.25 a.m. flight out of Dulles Airport to Los Angeles. So the September eleventh terrorist attacks uh really strike home with me because I could have somehow been on that plane.
1: JC, what were some of your first thoughts when you learned that you weren't in fact watching a movie but that we were actually attacked?
4: It was very frightening. We live in the United States of America. Things like this just don't happen. We are one of the most powerful countries in the world. And to feel helpless and to feel so vulnerable was a feeling that I was not used to. And so I was very uncomfortable. And, you know, to be on vacation, it just shook me. Because I couldn't see enough television. I couldn't get enough information about this to try and digest it in my brain. I just couldn't. It was it was a horrible week. I was away from Washington. I was away from my job. I'm a journalist. And when things like this happen, we jump into gear. Uh, I think this is when we are at our best. So I felt like my hands and feet were tied. There was nothing I could do. I couldn't move. I'm on vacation. I'm in a fabulous resort, and I am absolutely miserable.
1: And what were some of the reactions of people on the West Coast?
4: Well, they were kind of, uh, I think people were in shock. They were sort of like zombies. They were trying to go about their uh, regular daily lives, but there was a quiet hush that I think hung in the air. Um, people were were in shock.
0: Upon returning to Washington D.C., J.C. described the challenges she had with continuing the reporting of this horrific event.
4: Well, of course, it it was it was you know the word that comes to mind is that it was just painful. It was painful talking to people who had lost loved ones. It was extremely painful interviewing people whose loved ones survived um, because they were, you know, asking the question, why me? How is it that my colleagues and my friends um, died in this horrific situation and yet um I was left uh to survive uh, of course, here in Washington, we had the opportunity to talk to many people from the pentagon um who survived and who had just incredible um, burns uh who went through you know hours and hours and hours of uh, of treatment
5: mm-hmm.
4: um and and it, 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 any doctor can tell you that um a burn victim is is one of the most painful situations to watch you know because they have to go through so many procedures uh in order to heal for the skin and then of course we can't even talk about the the mental uh pain that they go through so here in Washington, we, we had an opportunity as journalists to, to talk to people from the Pentagon, um, and it and it lasted. I mean, today it's ten, 10 years, it's an anniversary, and it is just as raw for me today as it was 10 years ago.
5: We asked J.C. her thoughts about whether
0: we will be able to heal as a nation and return to the level of comfort we felt before
4: 9-11. I heard someone today on one of the networks talk about closure, and uh, he lost his son. He said there will never, ever be closure. People are using that word too lightly. Um, How can there be closure when your loved one um, was sacrificed uh, in this kind of uh, situation? I don't think that this country feels any more um at ease today than they did uh 10 years ago after the attacks i think that we are still vulnerable i think that the fact that osama bin laden is dead does not give us the feeling of being at ease i think there are others who would want to bring harm to this country and to its citizens, and um, I, I certainly personally do not feel comfortable. I, this was the beginning of what is going to be, you know, a long-standing situation in this country that we will never, ever really feel totally safe again,
2: mm-hmm. that
4: there are those out there who really want to bring harm to us.
1: Do you think that we've become complacent, again, with our national security?
4: I don't think we've become complacent. I think that, um, you know, you go to the airport and you still have, uh, you know, security me- security measures that you have to go through. I think that we need to probably instill um, more measures, you know, uh, for our trains, um I don't think that uh, we are as as strict as we should be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's more that, and it's it. Of course, it makes everybody feel uncomfortable. You, know, you take your shoes off. They they make me almost. It seems like I almost have to strip when I go to the <laughs> airport. I don't know what it is about my body or what, but uh, but, but I don't mind. I don't mind. Mm-hmm. I, I really don't mind. I think most people don't mind because. Um, uh we we reflect back on what happened 10 years ago.
1: And how ha- how would you say your life has changed since 9/11 2001 personally?
4: Well, I uh, number one, I know that um I can't become complacent. I think I'm very uh, much alert when I go out in crowds and bags, you know, you see a bag sitting that doesn't seem to belong to anyone immediately in the vicinity and you get alarmed you i think we're more um... we notice things more we notice people more Um i just think that uh... it has done something to everyone that we just cannot become complacent we have to be on alert and um... we have to take notice of things
1: that are happening around us. Dr. J.C. Hayward, thank you so much for joining us today on World Footprints, and congratulations in advance on your 40th anniversary coming up.
4: Well, I guess I fooled a lot of people. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and, you know my first thought was you're
4: only 29 so you... see I know that's the first thing people say my gracious how old is she <laughs> but it was a delight talking to you please feel free to get back in touch with me at any time
0: Don Diamond is an actor who is best known for his role as Dollar Bill Spencer on the CBS daytime drama The Bold and the Beautiful although domiciled in Los Angeles Don is a native New Yorker.
5: Well, my my sister still uh, lives and and works uh, in in, uh, in New York, and she lives but not far and works not far uh, from from where the Twin Towers stood. So, uh, you know, I was I was almost when I turned on the stage show, and you know, there it was. And initially, of course, they thought it was an accident, and then it, we all. Realized that that uh, that wasn't the case very quickly, and it was it was like everybody says it was surreal. It was astounding. it was it was torture. It was such a horrendous horrendous event to to witness. And I, and I was naturally concerned about my sister. She thankfully was not. Uh, 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 and I don't remember if I if I if I realized that at the time. But uh, she was abroad when it actually took place, thankfully. And um, it was just, just horrific, just, just an incredibly painful experience. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the memories of, of what we all watched will be etched in all of our of our minds. You know, but watching those people jump from from those windows and uh, uh, the, the, the human toll, the, the suffering, the heroes, the responders, emergency responders, the police to find everybody going in while everybody else is running away. Uh, all of it, all of it, just, uh, just, just extraordinary.
1: We spoke about what the 10th anniversary of 9-11 means in terms of our nation's security, especially following on the heels of the termination of Osama bin Laden. I mean,
5: you certainly have a sense of, well, some justice was done in that that circumstance, but there are are still many, many, many people out there that want to kill us as as Americans, and that's simply the reality of it, Uh, and and obviously there hasn't been an attack to the extent of of, of a 9-11. But, uh, you know, I'm I'm sure that there are still those out there that are are plotting and planning to do so. So uh, uh, I think hopefully and and, and clearly uh, when you can uh, disrupt the chain of command, it has a big uh, effect on their ability to organize and and actually pull off plots like that. And I I hope that... uh, now listen, God bless all those out there that we don't even know about, who are, who are between us and them, and doing what they can to keep something like that from ever happening again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you know, you look at Norway, look at what happened there. It takes one guy, one one nut on a mission, one person with no regard for human life, to wreak that kind of havoc.
1: Don Diamont, thank you so much for joining us today on
5: World Footprints Radio. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: When World Footprints continues, we'll speak to a first responder of a different kind, Jeff Morin with the American Bible Society. If
11: we're actually in prayer. For our larger church, when the first cell phone started to ring, it was one and then another and then another. We stopped the conference immediately and all rushed
2: back. And you'll need William Lair,
1: a survivor of the Pentagon attack.
12: At that moment, there was a tremendous bang, uh, heard even through the telephone, like a giant tire exploding. And instantly, we've been hit.
1: If you'd like to share your 9-11 experience, we'd love to hear from you. You can share your story on our Remembering 9-11, Your Stories blog at our website, worldfootprint.com.
7: I remember how incredibly, amazingly beautiful it was that day. I was a boot camp when I found out. They had the news on, and they mentioned that a plane had crashed into the World Trade Center. This year
8: marks the 10th anniversary of 9-11. What will you do to remember? I will remember by
9: planting a tree here at the Flight 93 Memorial. I will send care packages to troops overseas.
10: I will continue to be a volunteer fireman.
8: Join the 9-11 tribute movement. Post your tribute at facebook.com slash 9 day or 911 dayorg
0: Join award-winning World Footprints Radio, a leader in socially conscious travel for inspiring, entertaining, and educational shows. Meet well-known guests like Bobby Kennedy, Jr., Actress Stephanie Powers, director Ken Burns, David Rockefeller, Jr., and other celebrities, newsmakers, and industry professionals who celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage, and support public diplomacy. Travel with us to unique places around the world. Join us in our efforts to raise awareness about environmental conservation and human rights issues and learn what you can do to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Visit our interactive and informative website, worldfootprints.com.
1: Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick.
0: And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick.
1: A few years ago, we decided to leave our respective legal practices to live a more purposeful travel life and help others leave positive footprints.
0: World Footprints was born and was quickly recognized for its award-winning journalism. We've covered events from the Olympics to a Titanic expedition, and we've discussed conservation, environmental, and public diplomacy initiatives.
1: Join us for award-winning radio and visit our website, worldfootprints.com, for daily travel deals and comprehensive travel information. Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick.
0: And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're the host of World Footprints Radio.
1: World Footprints Radio and Travel Radio have joined forces to bring you our award-winning brand of socially conscious travel radio.
0: On World Footprints Radio, you'll meet celebrities committed to travel philanthropy and the protection of our planet.
1: And we'll introduce you to the people and places who will give you a taste of culture and heritage from their point of view.
0: Travel the planet with every episode of World Footprints Radio right here on Travel Radio.
1: And when you travel, remember to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Join award-winning World Footprints Radio, a leader in socially conscious travel, for inspiring, entertaining, and educational shows. Meet well-known guests like Bobby Kennedy, Jr., actress Stephanie Powers, and director Ken Burns, along with other celebrities, newsmakers, and industry professionals who celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage, and support public diplomacy initiatives. Travel with us to unique places around the world and join us on our efforts to raise awareness about environmental, conservation, and human rights issues and learn what you can do to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Also, visit our interactive and informative website at
10: worldfootprints.com. World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tonya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors, and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals.
0: For the latest and last minute travel deals, visit the worldfootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive non-published sales on travel. Our Dynamic Travel Deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners. You can't find these deals anywhere else, and we've seen sales for $9 per night for hotels and $49 airline tickets. So stop by WorldFootprints.com to see where you can go for less. Also, make sure you visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services.
7: I remember how... Incredibly, amazingly beautiful it was that day. I was in boot camp when I found out. They had the news on, and they mentioned that a plane had crashed into the World Trade Center.
8: This year marks the 10th anniversary of 9-11. What will
9: you do to remember? I will remember by planting a tree here at the Flight 93 Memorial.
8: I will send care packages to troops overseas.
9: I will continue
10: to be a volunteer
9: fireman.
8: Join the 9-11 tribute movement. Post your tribute at Facebook.com. 911 Day or dayorg
0: This is a special presentation of World Footprints Radio, remembering 9/11 ten years later. Here is your host, Tanya Fitzpatrick.
1: The tragic events on September 11, 2001, brought out the best in the American people heroes and humanitarians arose everywhere. In addition to firefighters, law enforcement, medical, and military personnel, many civilians jumped into action in the face of danger to assist in any way they could. Groups like the American Bible Society rose to the occasion, as member Jeff Morin explains.
11: Yes, I was actually, as an ordained pastor, gathered for a conference that day. Our entire regional ministry had gathered not knowing what was going to happen. So we were actually in prayer for our larger church when the first cell phone started to ring. And it was one and then another, and then another. We stopped the conference immediately and all rushed back to our existing churches and and parishes, very concerned about what was happening. And that was just in Philadelphia. So imagine the experience as I hear of it more and more what was happening in Manhattan as those who I now work with at American Bible Society situated in the heart of Manhattan you know, felt its thundering reverberation literally within the building itself, and as the smoke plumes began to rise from the the southeastern tip of the island. Um, Amazing, amazing that God has has placed us there. We've been headquartered in Manhattan for 195 years. It's really the center of so much of our ministry. So for this and the the epicenter of the tragedy, at least in terms of the lives lost being right there in our own neighborhoods, we could not. We we had to respond, and so we did quite quickly.
0: The American Bible Society was among the group of first responders to the World Trade Center attacks.
11: Yes, that's true. We we were there. I mean, as our hearts were broken, as so many others, you know, literally by foot, by bicycle, as as public transportation, you know, ceased to exist. Traveling when when you could by car, um, members of our staff. We had about 200 members of staff at that time. We're located in New York City. Rushed downtown, and so to be among the first volunteers to help in any way we could with you know strict humanitarian efforts of just helping people uh within though as we realized of course beyond the first physical and emotional needs come the spiritual needs, come the questions comes that the the anxiety and the and the hurt and the anger and and obviously incredible surprise that came from this event and so within forty eight hours, we created a a portion of scripture we called it God is our shelter and strength obviously from the strong promises they are found in the Psalms. God is their shelter and strength, a portion of Scripture. And we produced in in rapid succession over two million copies of this little booklet and found ways within the first forty eight and seventy two hours just you know, by car, by our own vans, whatever we could do to get those scriptures down to ground zero and throughout Manhattan to hand and provide for the people. Uh, making them available to mostly our staff hand to hand and then as, as as the weeks went on from Sunday to Sunday, church to church to equip the local churches to, to respond to the the kinds of, you know, deep, heartfelt questions that were coming to them each and every day.
0: There was such a hunger for the message of hope shared through this little booklet that it became difficult for the American Bible Society to keep up with the demand.
11: No, we couldn't. By the end of the, gosh, I am going to call it the first just two weeks, we had distributed over three million of these. And we... We <laughs> are looking for any place that could produce them fast enough. What it was, it was, it's God's word directly to people. We found, we pulled out just those verses that people desperately wanted to read. When Literally, when your entire world is shaken, what still stands? And here it was, solid and in print, provided for them in God's word.
0: People from all walks of life, regardless of religious affiliation, sought the comfort offered by this little heart-shaped book.
11: Exactly right. It was... It, not just pocket-sized, but sort of heart-shaped. It, it met the needs of that moment, and obviously it continues, too. Uh, we just actually re-released this booklet, God is Our Children's Strength, and a 10th commem- yeah, anniversary commemorative edition. Uh, we're going to be back down at Ground Zero on Friday, and at Columbus Circle in various places across New York, again reminding people of this strength that is found in God's Word. As the 10th anniversary rolls through, as it will, this weekend, you and me, as you just heard me describe, I, if we still remember the stories of where exactly we were. It is, it is shaping of our own understandings of ourselves and where to put our confidence and where we can't put our confidence. Mm-hmm. And so we want the opportunity, we're, we're glad for the opportunity to, and some other scripture portions and, and Bible resources, to bring people back to remembering what it was that helped bring them through this devastating event.
1: And, and so, in a lot of ways, that ministry you know continues. A ministry that started um, on September 11th, 2001, continues to this day to help heal the emotional scars of people affected by by this tragedy.
11: Oh, it, it very much does. Like we just to learn more about what some of the needs were for this particular occasion in our in our national life, we put out a, a national survey to try to get a sense for how are people feeling when you think back 10 years ago to now. We ask the question, do you feel less safe or more safe now than you did 10 years ago? Only 9% of Americans, this is at a national poll done for us by Harris Polling, only 9% of Americans actually feel safer today than they did 10 years ago. Mm. Uh, so it, it continues to exist within us that, that the questioning, the anxiety, you know, what is stable in the challenges of our world? The same poll, we asked the question of how, you know, what percentage of Americans are going back to the Scriptures to remember what is to be found there, what they did find there, what they can find there now, and uh, the statistics are not helpful in that regard. Only 80 is 82% of Americans who don't go to the Scriptures first and foremost; they go to other places. Uh, our way of understanding that the need still exists for organizations like American Bible Society to remind people to go out, provide timely resources, to give them access to God's God's Word in the ways and for the situations in which they find themselves.
1: Jeff, is the uh, booklet going to be available online? And and if so, can you share that website
5: with us?
11: Sure, I'd love to. Um, Our online Bible bookstore is called Bibles.com. Very simple to remember. Bibles with an S, Bibles.com. And yes, there's information there about how to, to get this resource. We're also releasing another resource called the Freedom Bible, which is uh, a, a, a lo- the entire Bible, because we obviously believe that the entire Word of God has important things to, to say to us, and gives you a thematic view of God's freedom for us when we face situations like this or the, the day-to-day challenges of our lives that lead to anxiety and stress as we face loss and separation and, and death. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Freedom Bible is actually a larger study Bible, which we're, we just released for this occasion, uh, because it gives the opportunity for those who go from the portion to want to see the larger sweep of God's Word and what it has to say on these these issues and and topics of concern for us.
1: Excellent. Jeff Morin with the American Bible Society, thank you so much for joining us today.
5: Thank you, Todd. It's a pleasure.
0: William Lear was a senior officer at the Pentagon, and on September 11th, he was in his office on the opposite side of where the plane impacted the building. He recounts the events of that day and how his life has changed since. This
12: is William Lehrer. On the morning of... September eleventh, two 2001, I was on the telephone in my Pentagon office. I, a friend had called earlier advising me of the attack on the Trade Center, and I had called another friend to find out what was happening with his sister-in-law, who worked in the Trade Center, who was not in the building, fortunately. At that moment, there was a tremendous bang, uh, heard even through the telephone, like a giant tire exploding. I knew instantly we'd been hit. I said on the phone, ''I've got to go.'' I hung up the phone, closed up my briefcase, put on my jacket, and I and my colleagues were exiting our spaces, at which time I ran across Lieutenant Campbell, who worked with us, and she had been coming up the hall thinking we could be next, and we were. I said to her, ''We're out of here. Leave everything.'' We got down to the Pentagon concourse and were directed down one of the corridors, which I noticed was then filling with smoke. I said to one of the guards, get people out of there, it's filling with smoke. He looked, directed us to another exit, which turned out to be where the old bus terminal had been under the building, and which was now offices. We went down the stairs, came out at ground level, and as we reached the end of the side where the exit was, looked up and saw what looked to be a mushroom cloud. It was from the where the plane had gone in. Uh, Seeing the mushroom cloud, even though all explosions have that, I immediately thought nukes and said, we've got to get out of here as far and as fast as we can. As we were walking out of the area, I saw what looked like two Arab men walking toward the building and alerted the police uh, uh, about their presence. By that time, the police had turned all roads south, uh, including the northbound 395, and were loading people into any available vehicle so happens that the one they directed us to uh, was occupied by people who had seen the plane go in. We got to my house, which was about 15 minutes from the Pentagon, and then I got Lieutenant Campbell to hers. A few days later, I returned to work. One could still smell the smell of that stench of uh, things burning, and that smell would last for for months. Well, most of the pace returned to normal rather quickly. Uh, for about the next year or so, I was on uh, on and off active duty as a reservist, working on plans dealing with uh, the lands uh, east of Suez. On December, all well, the early days of December '02, my phone rang and I was advised I was being mobilized. I had two weeks to get ready. I included my personal effects and my uh, unit responsibilities with the 352 Civil Affairs Command. By January 13th, we were in Kuwait. By March, when the war started, our units began to move up into Iraq. I would follow a couple of months later, and we would be in theater until March 04, uh, uh under the threat of certainly enemy attack and the, the actual attacks as as well, including you know, personally being ambushed and getting out of that. I returned in March '04, and then remained on active duty until about September. When I first got my notice to mobilize, my boss came out of the office with a fax and said, does this mean what I think it does? I said, I'll see you in about two years. And that was roughly uh, roughly it. The uh, mm-hmm. events that began on September 11th were certainly... Changed my life and just about that of everyone else uh, in the country and parts of the world as well.
1: Now, William, you thought uh, that the initial attack—you didn't know that was a plane that actually uh, hit the the Pentagon. You thought initially it was a nuke attack. W-
12: well, not until I came out and saw the mushroom cloud. I but I, my my mind immediately thought nukes. I didn't know what had hit us, just that we'd been hit. I didn't even think this. I didn't even think to think about what had been used.
1: And where was your office in relation to the penetration point?
12: We were on the opposite side of the building, on the riverside, where all the senior people are. We were up on the fifth floor, the, the D-ring, which is one in from the from the E-ring on the riverside of
1: the building. William also shares how things have changed at the Pentagon since the 9-11 attack.
12: Well, it's not... Completely, used to be able to. It was much easier to get into the building. Now there's increased security. Uh, The tours were that used to come through the building were canceled. Now they're only by special arrangement. Uh, Visitors entering the building have to come through an an outside checkpoint and then be escorted into into the building to where they're going to be and wear a badge that says visitor. the uh, The bus stations were moved further out. Well, there are always guards armed with submachine guns uh, around the building,
5: mm-hmm.
12: so those uh, those measures were uh, implemented. And there's no longer any real visitor parking. You, if you're going to park there, you have to have a a pass or have been cleared to to park. If you're just uh, just coming by, a far cry from the day when I first came to the building, where you could park for a few hours for about 25 cents.
1: William tells us that another change that has taken place is the implementation of an evacuation plan.
12: Uh, there was no plan at the time. People left the building in good order. There was none of this running around like crazy men like you see in the movies. People got out in good order and cleared the area. Now there are uh, plans in place that to exit from certain points if they're clear, and assembly points so people can be accounted for. So that's been... Uh, been a ch- but quite quite a change.
5: Mm-hmm.
12: And there are sound systems in the building to alerting people where to go and if anything has happened. Even if there's something, uh, someone leaves a package, it goes up on the alert system. And then a notice with, whether it's when it's cleared.
1: How has your life changed since that fateful day?
12: Well, I certainly never expected to be sitting in Baghdad or in the uh, Kuwaiti desert. So that was a... Or a change, or to be uh, shot at on on roads in in Iraq. So that was and uh, come close to being killed. That was certainly a, a change in one's perspective uh, in in life. And I think anyone who goes off to a war comes back with a, dif- a different perspective than the one they uh, than they than they left with. When your when your life is on the line and you come close to shaking hands with a does all alter things.
1: And for me the war actually started on September eleventh, two thousand
12: one. Yes, even though I didn't realize it. It, it, it came it came to uh, a hold very very quickly. Well William,
1: I, on behalf of all Americans I'd
12: like to thank you so much for the service and thank you so for sharing your story and your
0: You're welcome. Life changed for all of us in one way or another. Vincent Cam is a Pentagon survivor. Uh,
13: I was uh, a a lieutenant colonel uh, assigned to the Army staff uh, at the Pentagon, Uh, and I was located uh, right pretty much uh, close to the point of impact uh, from where the Flight 77 crashed uh, into the building.
0: And we'll hear a story when World Footprints Radio continues.
7: incredibly, amazingly beautiful it was that day. I was in boot camp when I found out they had the news on and they mentioned that a plane had crashed into the World Trade Center.
8: This year marks the 10th
9: anniversary of 9-11. What will you do to remember? I will remember by planting a tree here at the Flight 93 Memorial. I will send care packages to troops overseas. I will continue
8: to be a volunteer fireman. Join the 9-11 tribute movement. Post your tribute at facebook.com slash 9-11 day. 911 dayorg
1: Want to travel for less? Visit the worldfootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive, non-published sales on travel. Our dynamic travel deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners, and you can't find these deals anywhere else. We've seen sales for as little as $9 a night for hotel rooms and $49 airline tickets. So stop by worldfootprints.com to see where you can go for less. Also, make sure you visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services like passport for
0: Join award-winning World Footprints Radio, a leader in socially conscious travel, for inspiring, entertaining, and educational shows. Meet well-known guests like Bobby Kennedy Jr., actress Stephanie Powers, director Ken Burns, David Rockefeller Jr., and other celebrities, newsmakers, and industry professionals who celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage, and support public diplomacy. Travel with us to unique places around the world. Join us in our efforts to raise awareness about environmental conservation and human rights issues and learn what you can do to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Visit our interactive and informative website, worldfootprints.com.
1: Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick.
0: And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick.
1: A few years ago, we decided to leave our respective legal practices to live a more purposeful travel life and help others leave positive footprints.
0: World Footprints was born and was quickly recognized for its award-winning journalism. We've covered events from the Olympics to a Titanic expedition, and we've discussed conservation, environmental, and public diplomacy initiatives.
1: Join us for award-winning radio and visit our website, worldfootprints.com, for daily travel deals and comprehensive travel information. Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick.
0: And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're the host of World Footprints Radio.
1: World Footprints Radio and Travel Radio have joined sources to bring you our award-winning brand of socially conscious travel radio.
0: On World Footprints Radio, you'll meet celebrities committed to travel philanthropy and the protection of our planet.
1: And we'll introduce you to the people and places who will give you a taste of culture and heritage from their point of view.
0: Travel the planet with every episode of World Footprints Radio right here on Travel Radio.
1: And when you travel, remember to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Join award-winning World Footprints Radio, a leader in socially conscious travel, for inspiring, entertaining, and educational shows. Meet well-known guests like Bobby Kennedy, Jr., actress Stephanie Powers, and director Ken Burns, along with other celebrities, newsmakers, and industry professionals who celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage, and support public diplomacy initiatives. Travel with us to unique places around the world and join us on our efforts to raise awareness about environmental, conservation, and human rights issues and learn what you can do to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Also, visit our interactive and informative website at worldfootprints.com.
10: World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors, and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals.
0: For the latest and last-minute travel deals, visit the worldfootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive non-published sales on travel. Our Dynamic Travel Deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners. You can't find these deals anywhere else, and we've seen sales for $9 per night for hotels and $49 airline tickets. So stop by worldfootprints.com to see where you can go for less. Also, make sure you visit the travel marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services.
7: I remember how incredibly, amazingly beautiful it was that day. I was in boot camp when I found out. They had the news on and they mentioned that a plane had crashed into the World Trade Center.
8: This year marks the 10th anniversary of 9-11. What
9: will you do to remember? I will remember by planting a tree here at the Flight 93 Memorial. I will send care packages to troops overseas. I will
10: continue to be a volunteer
9: fireman.
8: Join the 9-11 tribute movement. Post your tribute at facebook.com slash 9 day or 911 dayorg
0: This is a special presentation of World Footprints Radio. Remembering 9-11, 10 years later... Here is your host, Tanya Fitzpatrick.
1: Vincent Cam was an Army Lieutenant Colonel assigned to the Pentagon. On the morning of September 11, 2001, he was preparing to host a meeting in his office, which was near the point of impact. At the time of impact, Vincent thought that there had been a propane explosion caused by a construction accident. The Pentagon was undergoing some construction at the time. Even after exiting the Pentagon and seeing the gaping hole caused by a plane, Vincent was unaware of the other attacks in New York and the thwarted attack in Pennsylvania, as Vincent shared, September 11th, 2001, started off as any other normal day.
13: My name is uh, Vincent Cam. Uh, I am uh, uh, a, a former the, the Army officer. I'm retired right now, uh, but back uh, about... Uh, ten years ago, roughly, on uh, 9-11, I was uh, a a lieutenant colonel assigned to the Army staff uh, at the Pentagon, uh, and I was located uh, right pretty much uh, close to the point of impact uh, from where the Flight 77 crashed uh, into the building. Um, So so recounting the the story from uh, that day, it was a a fairly clear, sunny day, a uh, bright uh the day that is is like any uh data in the Pentagon you know people call about their usual businesses and I started off uh the day the with a morning meeting that started at nine a m uh i was the the leader or leader for that particular meeting and it was located uh on the third floor uh with a a window view looking out to the outermost ring of the pentagon uh and uh, it's on the side uh, facing the uh, Arlington cemetery uh and and about roughly the, um 9:30 um, uh, that the, I heard a, a really loud explosion that the and felt the, the floor kind of uh, heaved up and lifted uh, and the the building kind of shook and uh all the lights went out all the power is gone uh, there was a tremendous amount of dust and uh, spouting that happened again in in the room and I was actually the, facing the, the window in, in this conference room the, with about eight person with me, uh, and I was looking directly at the window. The, I was standing, and I can see this fireball uh, coming towards me, the, and, and, and kind of the filled the entire the window. I can see that, but the window held intact; it did not shatter, uh, and uh, I was not uh, hurt uh, by any. Uh, secondary the explosion effects uh, from the debris uh... so the, um i was thankful that but at first uh... the what was running through my mind was that i thought this must have been a, a construction accident uh... because uh... i knew there were the con- contractors uh, working and construction workers working all around us uh... i was located a uh in a place where the, my unit had moved in about a week ago uh, and it was under the newly renovated section of the pentagon uh, In this particular area that, and i was actually thankful that you know the the i was actually in this newly renovated section uh, because uh, uh... later on i realized that this is uh... the uh... The, the location that actually had saved my life even though i was uh... directly above the uh... the path of the penetration of the aircraft um, the um, um, uh, there was a the, uh, uh, tremendous amount of confusion. that I knew that I'd I'd ask everyone from the room to uh, evacuate. I knew something really, really was wrong. That they, at first, you know, thinking that this might have been a construction accident, that it could be like a welder who had touched off uh, maybe a propane tank explosion. But after that, I thought that this couldn't be because as soon as I Look outside the door from the uh, the conference room. I can see the uh, the floor uh, on my uh, the office area has split open. Uh, there were flames shooting out from the back of the office. Uh, the entire the uh, room, which is uh, an open bay office, after uh, this is the Pentagon renovation where most offices uh, were uh, converted into a then giant open bay area uh, where the, a lot of the uh, the workstations are uh, uh, located. And my particular workstation is located right outside the conference room door, uh, pretty much or pretty close to, as uh, so well within the, you know, several steps away from the, the conference room. Uh, I can see the everyone within the open bay uh, area started to evacuate, and they're heading out towards the door to the the central corridor. That's corridor number four within the, the Pentagon, um, and I can uh, see the that everybody who's heading towards my direction and i was trying to get to my desk uh... which is uh... a little bit uh... uh... inwards uh, towards the, uh, the office against the traffic uh... but i was able to uh... to reach my desk uh... I was able to, to grab uh... some of my classified working papers uh... and 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 make sure that they are secure because i'm now doing the evacuation anybody could come through the office and so i do not want uh, and any classified the information that uh sitting around. Uh there so I quickly um also evacuated along with the uh the rest of the uh the uh, coworkers uh within the, the open bay area and as soon as I uh step into that hallway the in the Pentagon corridor number four, uh I can see the outermost ring, the E ring, were already engulfed uh in, in black smoke uh and you couldn't see down the hallway of who's down there um and there, there were one or two persons who came out of that that smoke uh, already crying screaming uh i can see my the uh, uh, division chief uh, standing right at the uh, the the access to that uh, the e ring and telling everyone to do not uh, approach or enter the e ring and start to proceed down towards the center of the pentagon and uh, in, in towards the, the a ring and that's where i proceeded and i walked along with uh uh, everybody on that floor, on the third floor, towards uh, the, the inner ring, most ring of the Pentagon. Uh, and as, at that time, uh, I can see the um, the automatic uh, fire doors which were installed in these corridors. So in case of fire, when the fire alarms were triggered, uh, these doors uh, would uh, uh, automatically shut uh, to prevent the smoke from infiltrating to other parts of the Pentagon. And I can see that there was uh, uh, two members uh, uh, from the Pentagon who were actually holding and keeping the doors uh, open against the motors that were trying to shut these doors. uh, And they were waiting until everyone uh, from that floor could actually get past this hallway uh, before these doors uh, were shut. Uh, So I was able to walk past that, and and I see... Uh, a, um, a janitor who uh, was obviously really confused, crying, but standing in place, didn't know what to do. So I just grabbed his hand and basically uh, took him uh, and out towards the, the exit of the Pentagon. I ended up uh, leaving the building uh, from the, uh, the metro entrance, uh, and it's from there that I uh, walked down towards the uh, south parking lot, and that's where I can see. Uh a hole a huge hole in, in the Pentagon that's when I realized that hey this was not really a construction accident um, and and that they they were uh already you know like uh, uh emergency the the rescued the personnel from the arlington fire department they were already on the scene uh they started uh, fighting fires and, and started the, the rescue operations already uh so I proceeded to basically that uh remaining morning uh uh, at uh... uh... a giant parking lot filled with uh th- thousands of people just walking around uh, and, and i was able to uh... start to look for the rest of my colleagues uh, from the office to ensure that they all accounted for uh... as, as it turned out uh... no one from my office uh, uh, on that, uh, the, the D ring was uh, actually hurt. Uh, we all had safely re- yeah, the safety, we had gotten out of the building. Uh, but unfortunately, our front office, which is uh, located on the uh, outermost ring, the E the, the ring of the Pentagon, uh, two of our members uh, had perished uh, from that incident. Um,
5: so,
1: Vincent, uh, by, at the time that the, the plane hit the Pentagon, uh, did you were you aware that also two planes had hit the World Trade Center?
13: Oh, absolutely not. I have no news of what's actually the, uh, occurring from New York City. Uh, I actually I I was preparing for a meeting, then conducting a meeting at uh, that at uh, that morning. Uh, so I didn't have any uh, news or any television on at that time. Uh, and it wasn't until um, I uh, after that that uh, particular morning it was like. Uh, about thirty minutes uh, uh, after the uh... the uh, the explosion that uh, i can see the uh... uh... the floor that where i was located had collapsed uh... The, and the the, the the facade of the, the building you can see that has, has collapsed and uh, there was there was a huge uh... uh... moan and cry you know, from the parking lot everybody who was on the scene there was looking at this and it was like incredible uh... people couldn't believe that the building that we've worked there every day and uh, has has collapsed uh... but I, I kind of uh, uh sensed it and and uh, well almost you know, that that was not a surprise for me uh, in, in particular because I am a an engineer by professional training uh and I have um investigated the um uh the Tower terrorist bombings at, uh, at Saudi Arabia uh, this is back in 1996 uh, time frame uh, and I knew the um, Based on that uh, particular explosion, where I was located, that the next most significant thing that would happen at that office would would be the collapse, uh, and and I was really worried about that, that that being able to get out there before the uh, this particular the part of the office would collapse. So I was thankful that it actually held up the, the enough uh, time to, for everyone to get out. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, the casualties would be uh, much much higher than uh, what you would see the uh, reported um
1: and how has your life changed since this tragedy
13: uh well i I value life actually a lot more um i i didn't uh, uh, really think about you know uh, having anything i think things special like a lot of people who survive you know among the officers that that have uh, deaths uh, or casualties in, in the, the the unit uh would always uh, ask that question about how how come uh they survive or a particular members survive and some didn't. Uh I I've never actually uh, thought about that. Uh but what I I I I thought about were the the outpouring uh, of uh of the support that we got from the uh the uh, the community all around us. And this uh come even from a five and my nieces and nephews, you know, they would uh tell the school teachers well who are the heroes, you know, that that's their uncle and they, because he works in the Pentagon and they would draw these pictures and they send to us and they, we got a lot of quilts and a lot of um uh, gifts from uh, uh various schools from throughout the country that were sent to the Pentagon and we actually we put these things up. And so for for about actually the extra several years, I reckon probably up to five years after nine eleven, that the uh... the pentagon was really riding on like a moral high ground uh... it, it was like the first year you know after the uh... the uh... The incident you know there was the code as far as to rebuild the sections that were damaged when so we can you know, reopen. uh... But i knew that my office was uh, basically destroyed and i had to work at a temporary location that uh, this is basically in, in a in the underground uh, command center within the the, the army the, the operation center Um, And It was on a borrowed office space, so I basically had worked out from there for uh, over a year before we were able to uh, find another location within the Pentagon where we can make uh, our office. Mm -hmm. So it kind of impacted on that uh, that work uh, in in terms of workspace. uh, Mm -hmm. uh, But uh, in terms of uh, morale, there was actually a a huge uh, booster because that's basically when we uh, knew that we were at war. Um and uh, since that uh, then and this is like ten years on so in hindsight you know we we have fought uh two wars and and know america has has never really won a war without the uh the the entire country and the population behind it and so uh, th- this is actually really gratifying that you know the, the professional arms was really looked upon as one of the the more respectable the, um, occupations uh, within society. Uh, and I can sense that you know, for about like five years in a row, you know where people would say oh you you you're in the service, or, okay, thank you for your service mm-hmm. or you go around at you know the different places you know they they the people look up to the services uh, as uh, their role models so, and a lot of kids uh involved uh with, had done the same uh, one of my niece uh, had um had followed with, and, and su uh, Entered West Point and graduated uh, there. And then she, and this is three years ago. And she's graduated and now. She's serving in uh, Afghanistan uh, as, as a, a Army uh, Engineer uh, Lieutenant. And I was uh, really proud. Of her It's kind of like more or less uh, followed up on my footsteps.
1: Well, that's wonderful. Uh, and, and and on behalf of um, all Americans, Vincent, I I do thank you and your niece uh, for for your service and uh, wish your niece. Uh, the best uh, in safety and security as she served in Afghanistan but thank you so much for sharing your story on World Footprints today Okay, you're welcome 9-11 is a day that none of us will ever forget for this generation it is our day that will live in infamy until I began preparing for this show I forgot how paralyzing the events of September 11th 2001 had been for me I was living in Arlington, Virginia at the time, but I was living in Arlington, Virginia at the time, but had traveled to Aberdeen, Maryland to spend a few days with my sister and nephews. My sister was working at the Aberdeen Proving Ground Army base at the time. I had just celebrated my birthday on September 2nd, and they wanted to have some cake and ice cream with me. On the morning of September 11, 2001, I hugged my family as they went off to work and school, and I was supposed to get ready to return home because I was scheduled to have lunch with a friend at the Pentagon. We were supposed to have breakfast, but I rescheduled for lunch two days before because I didn't think that I'd make it back early enough for breakfast. And instead instead of getting ready right away, I decided to sleep for a half hour more. The half hour turned into two hours. The ring of my sister's home phone woke me up, but I ignored it. The phone rang again, and I ignored it again, and again, and again. I thought the calls were coming from solicitors. The fifth time the phone rang, I was agitated enough to answer it very curtly. It was my sister. She was calling to see if I had left for the Pentagon and whether I had seen the news. I hadn't. She told me what happened, and in disbelief, I turned on the television just in time to see the second plane hit the tower. I don't remember how long I stared at the television with the phone in my hand. I just remember seeing the towers fall, one after another. I recalled the lunch I had at the top of the world just a few months earlier with my high school friend. I also remember seeing a smoking hole in the Pentagon, then the plane in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. I was in shock. I thought about my friend. Was she okay? I tried to reach her, and it wasn't until the following day when we were able to connect that she was okay. I was also worried about my sister on Aberdeen Proving Ground. I wanted her to come home at that moment with my nephews. The youngest, Mikai, was two years old and in daycare on the base. Caleb was eight years old at that time, and my sister had to wait for the school bus to bring Caleb back onto base because if she left, she wouldn't be allowed access back on. So she had to wait, and I waited at her home. It took me a couple of days before I felt comfortable driving back home to Arlington, Virginia. On the way home, I drove past the portion of the Pentagon that had been hit, and what I saw was so shocking and painful. Before 9-11, I would visit friends who worked at the Pentagon, and I would often have lunch in the dining room. I didn't realize that until I began to prepare for this show... That it had been 10 years since I stepped foot inside the Pentagon walls. I can't imagine what I would have experienced had I been at the Pentagon on that day. That's my 9-11 story. What's yours, dear?
0: My 9-11 story would have been like so many in Washington on that day. I was working at the time for a law firm in downtown Washington and would have been downtown. During the attack on the Pentagon But for a twist of fate I found myself in Baltimore that day uh, Preparing to go to the hospital For uh, some surgery that afternoon And I can remember that morning While watching uh, the Today Show And seeing the first attack on uh, the World Trade Center And wondering what was going to happen later that day thinking of all the people who might have required medical services up and down the East Coast from New York to Washington and imagining that uh, they'd be coming into cities all over. Well, I was in Baltimore that morning and uh, just didn't really know what to think, uh, what would happen that day. My first impulse was to give my mom a call in Michigan and I did that and after seeing that first attack uh, she was listening at work and informed me that the Pentagon had been attacked and it was just uh, surreal at that point point. and I recall then uh, telling her that I had to go and uh, I immediately sent a, a page to my uh, colleagues at work uh, to see if they were okay and to find out uh, what was going on in Washington that day. Turns out that they all made it home safe and sound. Uh, I was able to go to the hospital that day, uh, a very somber day, a day where I thought my operation was going to be canceled because they were going to have to work on people coming into Baltimore from from Washington and from other places like New York, that didn't turn out to be the case. As we later found out, there were nearly 3,000 people killed that day. There were some who did make it to the hospital, but many others didn't that day. That was one of the strong memories from my 9-11 experience. Another memory actually took place A week before, when I was coming back from New England, uh, flying back to Baltimore, and I was on a plane uh, from Providence, and uh, our plane flew past uh, Manhattan and the World Trade Center buildings, And little did I realize, that would be the last time I'd see the Twin Towers standing.
1: As a nation, we have many, many people to thank for their service to our country. We owe a debt of gratitude to those who came to our aid in the face of danger and uncertainty. We have a responsibility to remain united in the memory of our lost loved ones and to help the surviving victims put back the pieces of their lives. Thank you for joining us today on this commemorative broadcast of the 10th anniversary of 9-11. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, And until we see you again, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time.
0: Remembering 9-11, 10 years later. This has been a special presentation of Travelin' On Media Productions,
8: LLC.